From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. How many species make their home on planet Earth? The answer is, we don't know. Few life forms here have actually been described by science. Now leading researchers are calling for an all-out effort to survey life on Earth. Biologist E.O. Wilson says there's one good reason to do this inventory. Obviously, in the realm of conservation, we can't save what we don't know. Already, some amazing creatures are being found under the microscope. One of these is called the water bear. If you watch for a little bit, you start to see how it moves, and it moves in a very mammalian-like pattern. It kind of moves its head from side to side, and it waves its arms around. And so that's why I call these the charismatic microfauna. We take a journey to a little-known planet on Living on Earth this week, coming up right after this. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Recently, Japanese researchers surprised the world when they published a paper describing a new species of whale. They say they discovered this baleen whale when they were studying the DNA of a 36-foot-long bird's whale, which swims off the coast of Japan. A new species this size is a rare find these days, but in fact, we really have no idea how many species exist on our planet. Many experts believe that the Earth plays host to anywhere from 10 to 30 million distinct forms of life. A few say that number could be as high as 100 million. But less than 2 million life forms have been given a formal name by science or studied in at least some minimal way. And as species disappear at an unprecedented rate, scientists hope to discover, describe, and classify as many organisms as they can before it's too late. On this special edition of Living on Earth, science editor Diane Toomey will chronicle the who and how of this massive endeavor, the cutting-edge technologies, and the labor from both scientists and non-scientists alike that will be needed. And we'll hear from the father of biodiversity himself, E.O. Wilson. So let's set off to explore this little-known planet. It's a pleasant autumn night on New York's Upper East Side. Inside the elegant Explorers Club, just off Park Avenue, scientists are gathering to honor a group of colleagues. I make my way past the stained glass windows, up the staircase lined with wood-paneled walls, turn right at the stuffed polar bear, and find the library room where dozens have assembled. The club was founded almost a century ago by a band of gentlemen adventurers, and the photos of such legendary members as Ernest Shackleton, Lowell Thomas, and Sir Edmund Hillary hang from the walls. All were inspired, as club literature reads, by the desire to pry from the earth its long-held secrets. The same is true for tonight's honorees. But for them, it's not about big game or big mountains. For instance, there's Fred Spiegel, a University of Arkansas biologist. He's launching a worldwide hunt for all the species of slime mold. Slime molds are rather unfortunately named, but they're called slime molds because... The feeding stage is protozoan-like. It's an amoeba. So that's the slime part. The mold part is they form these absolutely spectacular, what we call fruiting bodies, that look like little fungi. They look like mushroom-like organisms. And they're jewels. My father-in-law stopped considering me a bum when he saw how beautiful they were. 
Fred Spiegel is one of four researchers leading what are known as planetary biodiversity inventories. It's a new strategy funded by the National Science and All Species Foundations to discover the unknown life on Earth. As the National Science Foundation puts it, our generation is the first to be aware of mass extinctions now occurring and the last to have the chance to inventory much of our planet's biodiversity before it disappears. So over the next five years, international teams will venture into the field, labor in the lab, and scour the backrooms of museums worldwide in search of all the species in their particular specialty. A team will focus on catfish, another on a family of plant-feeding insects known as Miridae. And there's even a botanist being feted here tonight. My name is Lynn Bose, and my specialty is the plant genus Solano. So this genus includes tomato, potato, and eggplant, a lot of other species that are used as food crops, and also a lot of plants that are grown as sources of medicinal compounds. The University of Utah researcher says being part of a planetary biodiversity inventory, or PBI, is daunting. It's scary but exciting. It's, this is a dream for us. Um, three of us were in the field in South America together a couple years ago, and we actually talked about doing this project before we even knew about the PBI program. So as soon as we saw the announcement, like, we've got to go for it. There was a time when this kind of basic exploration was the very backbone of the biological sciences, but it fell out of favor in the last century. Now, a number of influential researchers are calling for a return to basic exploration, everywhere, for everything. Now, what I'm going to do is to uh, take a specimen from the um, one of scores of cabinets that we have just for the uh, genus Phydoli alone, uh, in the insect collections here at the Museum of Comparative Zoology. E.O. Wilson leans over a large wooden box filled with dozens of specimens of the creature that's made him famous, ants. The preeminent biologist accomplishments include pioneering work on the chemical communication of ants and in the field of sociobiology. He's famous to non-scientists through his Pulitzer Prize-winning books. Nowadays, he's perhaps best known as a spokesperson for conservation. Wilson even coined the terms biodiversity and biophilia. But today, in his Harvard office, we're talking ants. He carefully picks up one of the tiny insects and places it under his microscope. Now I'm going to uh, sit down and uh, get the specimen under the scope so it can be viewed properly. And... Uh, Get the magnification down so that uh, at first so we can locate the specimen and line it up in the correct position. Before he leans towards the microscope, Professor Wilson flips back a lock of his hair. And in that moment, and despite the fact he's dressed in professorial tweed, the expectant look of a boy comes over his face. Caltrop. And this one is named Caltrop because um, it has long needle-like spines on the back of its, uh, the middle part of its body, and I, it made me think of a caltrop, you know, this uh, triangular spine uh, weapon that uh, used to be thrown on the ground uh, in ancient warfare. At 74, Professor Wilson's enthusiasm for his ants remains unabated. But these days, it's the life that remains unknown that plays more and more on his mind. It's not an exaggeration to say we live on a little-known planet, 
and the science of biology will depend on, in the 21st century, a much closer examination of the diversity of life at the species level and an all-out effort to complete the mapping of life on Earth. That's what Wilson and others are calling for, a concerted effort over the next quarter century to discover and describe the millions of species that remain unknown to formal science. While creatures like birds, mammals, and flowering plants are relatively well-known, it's the smallest life forms, things like nematodes, millipedes, and bacteria, that largely remain a mystery. Wilson calls these unheralded organisms the little creatures that run the world, and he says there's a price to pay if we ignore them. When biologists go forth into the field to understand how ecosystems work, to identify uh, new invasive species, to identify the pathogens of newly introduced diseases, to look for new pharmaceuticals among plants and even insects, uh, the typical uh, experience is they cannot identify a large number of these species. They're not even aware of their existence. For instance, before they were discovered in the 1970s, who imagined that microorganisms known as extremophiles could survive in the boiling temperatures of ocean thermal vents or in icy polar seas or in acidic hot springs? Research on one such bizarre creature led to the development of a technique called polymerase chain reaction, now a common and indispensable method of duplicating DNA. The enzyme of another is now used to make a protein-degrading additive for detergents. Other extremophiles are being mined for possible sources of new antimicrobial agents. But E.O. Wilson says there's another, more basic reason behind the need for a global survey. Obviously, in the realm of conservation, we can't save what we don't know. And the key to carrying out this survey is the discipline known as taxonomy. That's the science of discovering, describing, and classifying species. But there's a glitch. Taxonomy fell out of favor in the last century as microbiology took center stage and most of the research money. Now, there are few scientists who have the ability to discern the often maddeningly subtle, minute details that differentiate one species from another. Dr. Wilson never left the basic work of ant-identification. In fact, he's recently published an 800-page opus on just one genus of ant, Phydoli, otherwise known as the big-headed ants. The heads are filled uh, with uh, massive adductor uh, muscles. They're sort of uh, Schwarzeneggers only from the, uh, the chest up. And uh, those uh, powerful, uh, sharp mandibles, jaws they have, allows them to operate like wire clippers when they meet enemies. Uh, they just chop off their, their legs and their heads and so on. Uh, and then uh, along with them, you'll see the skinny little uh, minor workers that are to do all the work. And get none of the credit. Uh, well, they get it from me. This massive endeavor was actually a hobby. Wilson did it on the weekend, 18 years worth of weekends, and countless hours after work. Now, all 624 species of phydolians in the New World, including more than 300 new to science, have been described and drawn in amazing detail. And it was done uh, for the love of the ant itself, uh, the love of the work itself, and uh, just as a, a loving exercise in natural history. Wilson's love of natural history has its origins in his boyhood. He says he never outgrew his bug stage, but he did have a mentor in his study of ants. 
When I was uh, 18 years old, I uh, announced while I was an undergraduate at the University of Alabama that my great uh, ambition was to do a complete study of the ants of Alabama. Well, you've got to start somewhere. And this young graduate student, he's just seven years older than I am, was at Harvard. He was a graduate student at Harvard, and he heard about me, and we started corresponding. He said, look, Wilson, uh, the ants of Alabama isn't going to cut it. What you've got to do is uh, get a broader perspective and uh, uh, start working on the basic biology of a group of ants and uh, look abroad and uh, get moving. Dr. Wilson says entomologist Bill Brown took him under his wing, introduced him to researchers at Harvard, and as he puts it, he never looked back. In his latest book, E.O. Wilson includes a tribute to his mentor. He welcomed you. He treated you with respect. He stood in awe with you before the intricacy of the subject. He gladly taught and learned. He created a sense that here in this little discipline was something to borrow from F. Scott Fitzgerald, the kind of writer Bill Brown so admired, something commensurate to man's capacity for wonder. In 1950, he was 28 and I was 21, and the whole world seemed ours to possess. Everyone should have such a mentor. I would uh, like to uh, provide that blessing for everyone if I possibly could. Taxonomy is going to need many more mentors if the millions of unknown species are ever to be identified. But right now, many creatures have no experts. For instance, the last camel cricket specialist died in 1989. Want to study the grasshoppers of the Caucasus and need help? Well, you're about three decades too late. The endangered status of taxonomists has even led to jokes. One goes like this. Taxonomists are so rare, maybe they should all be brought in from the wild and enrolled in a captive breeding program. You're listening to A Little Known Planet. Coming up, Diane Toomey takes us to visit a program to encourage students to take up the basic science of classifying forms of life. You're listening to NPR's Living on Earth. Welcome back to Living on Earth's special, A Little Known Planet. I'm Steve Kerwood. It's probably easy to find a lot of fourth graders who say they'd like to study chimpanzees or whales or elephants when they grow up. But what fourth grader goes around saying, I want to be a sea slug taxonomist? But sea slugs, along with parasitic wasps, bark beetles, and many other organisms, are among the many understudied creatures that make up a critical part of ecosystems. In 1994, the National Science Foundation launched a grant program to help pull the basic science of species identification out of the scientific backwaters. The initiative funds graduate students in particularly hard-hit fields of taxonomy. Living on Earth's Diane Toomey visited with one such student and her professor. Now, talk to me. What's going to be convenient for you guys out there? Uh, buckets? Yes. Tubes. Researcher Mark Siddall stands on the shore of a small pond on the campus of the University of Connecticut in stores, handing out equipment to his assistants. These are... Uh, 50 milliliter falcon tubes used normally for centrifuging various compounds. Uh, we, of course, use them for collecting leeches. Blood-sucking leeches are the focus of much of Mark Siddall's work. He's a curator at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. While most people might go out of their way to avoid leeches, he goes out of his way to find them. Siddall has looked for them from the jungles of Madagascar to the mountains of the Andes. Today, he's searching in western Connecticut, and after making sure her waders are properly secured, 
He sends his 27-year-old graduate student, Liz Borda, into the chilly waters. All right, get out of here, kids. All right. Go out and find some leeches. Yes, Papa Leech. Okay, so Liz. Yes. Now that we're out here, uh-huh. describe what happens next. So we're just going to stand stand around a bit and move around, move our legs, shake our legs, hopefully not fall in. And uh, they'll, they'll usually be attracted to movement, so they'll come swimming towards us, hopefully. Um, so we'll just stand around and wait. The mission today, find the New England medicinal leech, which hasn't been seen since the 1970s. The word medicinal is a leftover from bloodletting days. And although leech anticoagulants are put to use in modern medicine during procedures such as limb attachments, that's not why this team is interested in them. They're motivated by simple scientific curiosity. They want to find out if the New England medicinal leech is really a distinct species and if it's gone extinct. Wait, hold on. I found a leech, but it's not what we're looking for. Right now I have a very tiny leech. It's from the family or probably Glossophonidae. Um, This group, you know, there's some blood feeders. There's also some non-blood feeders. Uh, Some species will pretty much they suck a snail dry. Liz brings the tiny brown creature wriggling on the palm of her hand to Dr. Siddall to identify. Uh, Helobdella stagnalis. Which it might sound surprising that with a naked eye I can diagnose the species of a leech that's maybe four millimeters long. Um, I'm impressed. If you look carefully in the light, there's a tiny little black dot on, I hesitate to say neck. Leeches don't really have neck. And uh, that's the only species in North America that, that has that. Mark Siddall is only one of a handful of leech taxonomists in the world. He's obviously devoted to the study of his creature. He even keeps a leechman action figure on display in his office. That's why he wants to pass on his knowledge and, as he puts it, replace himself. But his is an uphill battle. I have trouble getting scientists excited about leech systematics. I mean, let's be honest. If you put me in a room next to, well, even next to Ed Wilson, who works on diversity of, of ants, people get excited about ants. Leeches are like, ew. And that was Liz Borda's reaction when she first encountered leeches on a trip to Madagascar to study lemurs. One day, while she was out on a hike... All of a sudden, I look down at my pants and I have like 20 leeches climbing up my leg. And you couldn't rip them off because they're, they're just so quick. They're just after you. And, you know, when you have like 20 or 30 just from all directions, you don't even know where they're, where they're coming from. So it was, it was pretty, it was just horrible. But somehow, when she interviewed for a job as an assistant in Siddall's lab, she resisted the urge to run out the door when he told her what he did for a living. But because of the chance to participate in his field work, Liz says she eventually decided to follow in Dr. Siddall's footsteps. Okay, maybe it's not the cute and fuzzy animals I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to study, but maybe this could be something different. And for the brave few like Liz, there's a lot more leeches to find. For instance, Mark Siddall says in one six-week trip to Madagascar, he doubled the known number of terrestrial leech species on that island. But no such luck today. The team has struck out at another pond, this one in nearby Massachusetts. This is a sad day because uh, this is the third time I've come here looking for this leech. I can't uh, really justify keep coming back to the same place. 
Why do you care about finding this guy, the New England medicinal leech? Oh, wow. Um, well, I guess that my first answer would be somewhat flippant. Why not? Academically speaking, it's it's just it would be interesting to know if this species is a valid species. And that would lead us to try to understand why is it so rare. As far as uh, understanding something that would be of benefit to humanity, that's really not my concern. Um, I'm not bothered um, by that. But then neither was the person who first described, let's say, the giant Amazonian leech in the 1800s, I think, or the early 1900s. Nobody cared. However, now we know that that species has an incredibly powerful anticoagulant that will actively break down clots after they've formed. Now, if nobody had bothered to give that species a name and identify where it occurs and where it lives, would anybody have bothered going look for, to look for it later to see if it had some of these properties? So I, my job is in the descriptive side of things. What's out there? Where do they live? How are they related? I'll leave it to someone more qualified than me to figure out why that might be interesting. Mark Sidall looks down into the chilly water, and as he continues, I hear the passion in his voice. And you know, the, the world would be a, a darker, more lonelier place without them. If all we had were antelope and elephants and panda bears, the world would be a pretty boring place. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the fullness of biodiversity itself is something that is aesthetically beautiful. Liz Borda says when she finishes her Ph.D. in a few years, she hopes a museum or the like will want to employ a leech taxonomist. In the meantime, just studying leeches has its benefits. Honestly, saying that you're, uh, you study leeches can either be a conversation starter or a conversa- conversation stopper. So it can, you can use it to your advantage at times, I think. It kind of weeds out, you know, the men from the boys. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> If Liz ever discovers a new leech species, scientific protocol dictates she'll get the honor of naming it. That's something E.O. Wilson has had plenty of experience doing. Just for this latest book, he had to come up with more than 300 names for the new species of Phydolians he discovered. They include Phydoli harlequina, named for its multicolored body, Phydoli harrison fordi, named in honor of the actor for his support of conservation causes, and Phydoli bison, alluding to the massive humped back of that species' soldier ant. After studying this group for almost two decades, I asked Dr. Wilson if he had any favorites. He tells me about a rare species that has a rather unusual way of protecting its nests. They have heads shaped like the cork of a wine bottle and the front of the uh, cork that is the front of their head uh, is heavily armored like an old Greek shield and what they do uh, when enemies appear then they plug the nest with their heads Uh, and uh, I think that's to use the current word kind of cool and cool Dr. Wilson says will help to lure people to the study of the natural world And if that deadline of finding all the unknown species in 25 years is to be met, people without scientific training will also need to get involved. There's one place in the U.S. where so-called citizen scientists are already being put to the test. 
The visitor center at the Great Smoky Mountains is hopping today. In the autumn, tourists come to this national park, which straddles the border between North Carolina and Tennessee, to take in stunning foliage. And then they hit the gift shop for postcards, patches, and pumpkin butter. But just a few short miles from this racket, two citizen scientists labor in quiet determination. Okay, I need an opinion. You need an opinion? Is that possible? Do we possibly have him? I think that may be him. I don't know. There's the color, it could be a color variation, or it's, is it, am I totally off? 14-year-old Alex Casella and his mother Paige are combing field guides at a research facility in the park. With the help of park ranger Jonathan Mays, they're comparing pictures of brown moths to the actual brown moth in front of them. Well, it definitely the has this, uh, this margin on the rear of its forewing. Let's check in the uh, Quebec book. Oh, God, the one that's all in French. Ah. Twice a month, Alex and his mom come to the park to empty a moth trap, a Rube Goldberg contraption that uses a black light to lure the moths into a refrigerator. And then they try to figure out what's been caught. Alex, a teenager with a mature demeanor and a direct gaze, is homeschooled. But here in the Smokies, he studies under the guidance of park employees. And he's gotten to the point where he can identify a number of moths down to the species level. Well, you can tell by the wing shape here. His wings are folded back here, um, that he is an octuid. And you can see he's got a pattern here that's very distinct. He's got a light spot here, then a dark spot with a tiny spot of pure white in it, almost like a reversed eye. In his small way, Alex is helping to complete a large project, the Altaxa Biodiversity Inventory. That's the name of the park's five-year-old effort to find and identify every life form within its half million acres, bears to bacteria. It's the first project of its kind in the U.S. The mission has already discovered more than 400 species, including beetles, millipedes, fungi, crayfish, and slime molds. Alex hasn't found any new moth species yet, but says he's glad to help out, and he's learned a lot. I didn't think that there would be nearly as many moths as there were. Nondescript LBMs, little brown moths. The survey has a shoestring budget, supported mostly by two nonprofit organizations. So in the summer months, armies of volunteers descend on the Smokies for activities with names like Fern Foray and Beetle Blitz. Keith Langdon is the supervisory biologist at the park and coordinates the inventory. He says the involvement of citizen scientists is essential, but it's risky. What we found out the hard way is that you can't just invite citizens in and turn them loose because they need, they need someone to uh, show them the ropes. And when you're talking about data, bad data is far worse than no data at all. And so that requires some structure, some supervision, some coordination. And so we've been careful to only expand to volunteers uh, where we can provide those resources to make the data trustworthy. So the park has a mandatory training program to ensure that specimens sent to experts for identification have accurate where and what information attached to them. Langdon says many volunteers participate once. Some are repeat citizen scientists. Only a few are hardcore. The gold standard here is to find someone who just almost becomes um, enamored, uh, almost obs obsessed with a particular group, and, and actually do become local regional experts. But it's difficult to find people with the, the time and the wherewithal to, to provide that. And there are bottlenecks. There's only so many staff members to train and supervise volunteers. 
And while it may be relatively easy to get people out on the trails to collect the bottles of bugs caught in traps, that's just the beginning. And we need people to go through and sort the moths from the beetles, from the flies, from the ants. And that's, that's the real bottleneck because the, the world authorities do not have the time to do that. Langdon says he can't really blame citizen scientists for having their limits. Let's face it, when you come to a national park, you want to hike, you want to get out, you want to, you want to see some of the wildlife, you want to uh, see some vistas. This is the 70, minus 70 degree freezer, which we use for all kinds of samples. The top shelf of that's cram packed with samples from the Smokies. Right now, the only vista that concerns zoologist Paul Bartles is the one he sees in his lab freezer. We've done most of the field collecting already, and we have this huge backlog of doing the lab processing. It takes something like six hours of work for every hour in the field to process the stuff. That stuff is the hundreds of baggies crammed into this freezer that are stuffed with moss, lichen, or soil, which are chuck full of tardigrades. Never heard of a tardigrade? Well, neither had I. Something crawling around. Let's see what that is. See if we can find... Ah, right there. There is a tardigrade. Dr. Bartles, a professor at Warren Wilson College in Asheville, North Carolina, zeroes in on one of these microscopic creatures and then lets me have a look. It's very cute. (laughs) That's the most commonly used word to describe them. (laughs) Under the microscope, I see a pleasantly plump creature propelling itself through the water on stubby little legs. If you watch for a little bit, you start to see how it moves, and it moves in a very mammalian-like pattern. It kind of moves its head from side to side, and it waves its arms around. And because of that, they've been called water bears. And so that's why I call these the charismatic microfauna. They're really pretty neat little animals. Paul Bartles heads up the first-ever tardigrade survey in the Smokies. So far, he and colleagues have found 44 species, eight of which are new to science. There's probably more out there, but for now, those discoveries will have to wait because of the backlog in lab work. Before they can be sent off to one of the few specialists able to identify them, the tardigrades have to be flushed out, isolated, and then placed in test tubes. With the small amount of money the park has given him, Bartles has been able to hire college sophomore Stacy Hollis to do some of this grunt work, which involves lots and lots of pipetting. Up and down and up and down and... It takes a good while, and you want to make sure to get every little bit of sediment because you don't want to miss a thing. It it sounds like it can be tedious. It can be very tedious. (laughs) Sometimes we'll have music playing, and it's good to work in pairs. Otherwise, you're just sitting there mm, thinking a lot. (laughs) Paul Bartle says it's been almost impossible to find volunteers to do this tedious work. If he had the money, he could hire a full-time technician. And he's come up with a scheme to get that cash. Remember those eight new species of tardigrades? Well, they don't have names yet. If anybody wants to donate a lot of money, I'll name eight tardigrades after you. (laughs) We can have a bidding war, maybe. Coming up, we'll hear that some people don't require big bucks to do work that might seem repetitive or tedious. For them, such work is a delight. 
But first, in May, a group of our listeners will join me on an eco-tour of some of Africa's great natural areas. The tour will include a special walking safari in South Africa's amazing Kruger National Park. The park's 16 ecosystems are home to over 700 species of birds and mammals. It's a land of diversity, but Kruger is most famous for an abundance of the Big Five, lions, leopards, rhinos, buffalo, and elephants. You'll have the rare opportunity to see all these animals up close as guides take you on day hikes and night drives. There are two ways that you can join the caravan. Go to livingonearth.org to find out how you can win a trip for two. You can also reserve a space by buying a ticket right now. For details, visit our website, livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org for a chance at the trip of a lifetime. You're listening to NPR's Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the World Media Foundation. Major contributors include the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues and the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation for coverage of Western issues. Support also comes from NPR member stations and Bob Williams and Meg Caldwell, honoring NPR's coverage of environmental and natural resource issues and in support of the NPR President's Council. And Paul and Marsha Ginsburg in support of excellence in public radio. Welcome back to Living on Earth and our special A Little Known Planet. I'm Steve Kerwood. We've heard how both researchers and the lay public can help count up the Earth's creatures. Now we'll see how technology is helping to speed up the identification of species. But first, Living on Earth's Diane Toomey takes us back to Harvard biologist E.O. Wilson to see how things were done the old-fashioned way. And um, I have to bring this up a bit. And now the specimen is in view at a relatively low magnification. The core of Dr. Wilson's book on Phydolians is his detailed line drawings that fill most of its oversized pages. They serve to document the physical characteristics that separate one species from another and allow other taxonomists to compare specimens of their own. And I'm going to bring up the magnification now uh, so that we can see the specimen at about the uh, magnification I frequently use to make the drawings. So using a number one pencil, Dr. Wilson made more than 5,000 drawings of soldier and worker ants from various angles, the top side from the front, and that meant hours of peering into a microscope. I uh, will line it up for you to look at, and now you will be able to see this uh, specimen yourself as you peek through. Can you see it? Oh, my. And do you see the micrometer there? A yellow ant sits under a grid that makes the insect easier to draw. I'm staring at Fidoli caltrop from Panama. At this magnification, its head is spectacularly, hideously large. And a dark, lifeless eye, does the eye of an ant ever look otherwise, stares back at me. So it's possible then to uh, work off that image and to uh, examine it from every, every angle. Then, the little hairs are yeah. quite visible. And, and you know, uh, for a lot of people, they see one ant, they think they've seen them all. Well, certainly when they see one Fidoli, they think they've seen them all. But in fact, how long those hairs are, how abundant they are on different parts of the body, the direction 
that they take as, you know, whether they are stand straight up or they're oblique or whatever. All of these things go into the description, and I've represented them, you see, in the drawing. Uh, and they allow you to tell these apart at a glance. I mean, it did occur to me, looking at these amazingly detailed, fine drawings, that in order to be a good scientist, one had to be a good illustrator. That's true also. I, I am no artist, but I'm a, a moderately good illustrator. So I realized that I wasn't going to climb this Mount Everest of ant taxonomy unless I just put a large amount of personal effort into making the drawing. This was the knitting part of my uh, work. Yes, you heard right, knitting. That's the leisure activity to which Dr. Wilson compares his hours of drawing. At that point, I realize I have something in common with one of the world's most famous scientists, so I ask him. I knit a bit, <laughs> and there is something very meditative right. about the process. Yes. And so I'm wondering if you also found a certain meditative quality to this exercise. Uh, an excellent question, and uh, the answer is yes. Uh, those many, many hours at odd times, on a Saturday night, on a Sunday morning, I sat down with some music in the background and uh, pulled the specimens out and started going through them. And there was a thrill when I would hit a new species. Good Lord, look at this thing from Nicaragua. I'm the first to see this amazing creature, which is the feeling I would get. But in between, when all of the work was being done, I was doing the drawing and taking the measurements, I was also thinking, I was meditating about biology and sometimes life in general. I'm about to ask Dr. Wilson another question, but he puts me on hold while he reaches for the caltrop and he's let me look at. Let's see, where did I put caltrop? My box of caltrop, there's caltrop, yeah. That's the nightmare scenario when you're doing taxonomy, particularly if you've borrowed a bunch of uh, 70 to 120-year-old specimens from a European museum. You know, the thought of, of breaking the specimen is, uh, is, is nightmarish. So that's, that's part of the work that I, I like the least, is unpacking and, and handling these extremely fragile but uh, valuable specimens. Dr. Wilson made his drawings in much the same way the first taxonomist had in the 18th century. And like them, when he wanted to compare or identify the specimens kept at other institutions, he had two options. Go to them, or if you're lucky enough to be one of the world's most famous scientists, have them mailed to you. That's a high-risk procedure. I was able to get back every single specimen in good condition to every museum. That isn't always the case. Harvard has loaned out specimens that have ended up mangled in the mail. But now there's a new way of doing things that became possible just as Dr. Wilson was finishing up his book. I like to say that the huge work that I did with the drawings uh, was the last of the great sailing ships and that uh, the, uh, the new order entered with the CD-ROM that is pasted in the back that CD-ROM and the New Order are based on a breakthrough in digital photography that captures exquisite details of each species. While Professor Wilson added small arrows to his drawings that call attention to important details, the electronic images are stunning close-ups. And to see how it's done, I just have to walk down the hall. 
So now the trick is to get the lighting right. So what I would do, I would increase the lighting a little bit on the back of the head. Okay. Harvard professor Piotr Nazgrecki instructs a lab assistant on insect photography. As Dr. Nazgrecki tweaks the knob on a microscope, we watch the magnified face of a wasp appear on an adjacent computer screen. This looks pretty good, actually. Okay. I would put a little more light on this, on this eye so it's similar to the other one. Until recently, photographing small organisms, anything under two inches, presented a big problem. That's because at high magnification, it's hard to keep everything in focus at the same time. So concentrate on an antenna and the abdomen gets blurry. Sharpen up the image of a wing and there go the back legs. To illustrate, Nazgrecki pans down to the foot of that wasp. So what I'm doing, I'm, I'm moving the microscope up, up and down. And by doing that, I focus on a different part of the foot. Now the distance between the, the, one, the element on the left, which is the attachment of the foot, to the tip of the foot, the distance, actually vertical, vertical difference between this and that point, is probably one-tenth of a millimeter. Uh, but it's, it's, it's big enough to completely throw it out of focus. So you can only see one at a time. Really. Right, right. Um, so what we'll do, we'll try to take an automontage shot of it. Automontage is the name of the computer system that searches out just the in-focus portion of a series of photos and combines those pieces into one perfect picture. There's other computer software that can do the same job, but Automontage is a full 60 times faster. It was originally developed for use in geology, but when biologists learned about it a few years ago, they realized what a powerful tool it could be for them. Since then, Nazgrecki has been working with the company that developed it to tweak it for taxonomists. So for our purposes, for entomology and other biological sciences, this is an, a, a real breakthrough. So a researcher can identify that species without having to actually examine it in a microscope. As Piotr Nazgrecki turns a knob ever so slightly, different parts of that wasp foot come into focus on screen. And with a click of a mouse, each image is digitally captured. So... I'm taking individual shots. You're just waiting until a certain part comes into focus. Right. A couple of seconds later, the composite photo pops up. Well. So, again, all that we wanted to see, which is the food and all the details of the food, are perfectly in focus. Am I right to call them hairs? Are these? Yeah, yeah, you can call them hairs. Okay. And a claw at the and end. And a claw. And this area here which is kind of shriveled. It's called aerolium. This is the part that's sticky that allows insects to walk on glass and other things. Okay. I mean, it's just kind of horrifying in all its detail, isn't it? <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful, yeah. <laughs> Nazgrecki and his team plan to use this technology to photograph all of the reference specimens in Harvard's entomology collection, one of the most significant in North America, all 28,000 of them. Can't imagine where Harvard keeps 28,000 bugs? Once again, the answer's right down the hall. Me and the janitors have lots of keys. The keeper of the keys around here is Brian Farrell. His official title is Curator of Entomology at Harvard's Museum of Comparative Zoology. Farrell unlocks a heavy metal door, and we walk into a high-ceiling room lined with rows of gray metal cabinets, 700 in all. And basically, that, this, is the, uh, this is the vault, you know, this is the sort of Fort Knox of uh, this end of biodiversity. So these are the, uh, the gold standard, really, by which um, our specimens collected uh, from around the world are, are compared to decide whether or not they belong to this species or some other species. 
The first thing you notice in here is the dizzying smell of mothballs. In this room, the only good bug is a dead one. Theral walks to one of the cabinets and pulls open a drawer. The specimens that rest here in foam-lined boxes were collected from all over the world by Harvard researchers. This is a uh, collection of probably a dozen species of, uh, of really large serambicid beetles. This one here is uh, a genus from the Peruvian Amazon, and their uh, antennae, their long, in- long orange antennae, are festooned with these um, tufts of black hair. Every uh, every other segment, basically, like pom poms, uh, arranged on a you know long orange wand. A really extraordinary looking beast. Now, if I was a taxonomist who, for some reason, needed to examine this type specimen. There really are, are few options. Uh, we only, with great hesitancy, uh, trust the mail service to, to mail specimens like this, and really almost never out of country. Harvard does allow researchers to examine these specimens here, but that travel can be prohibitively expensive, especially for scientists in the developing world, where most of the world's biodiversity resides. This is one of the big bottlenecks in species description. And before he came to Harvard, Piotr Nazgrecki knew its frustrations all too well. I come from what I think could be described as a developing country. I, I come from Poland, and I, I, I very distinctly remember uh, going through unbelievable hassles, trying to borrow specimens that people were very, very reluctant to send to Poland. So I, I know the other side of the coin. Nazgrecki would like to see all major Western institutions break down this barrier by following Harvard's lead, digitize their collections, and put them on the web with unrestricted access. But Brian Farrell is breaking up that bottleneck in another way, taking technology on the road. As organic insecticide is sprayed onto trees in the Dominican Republic, a net under the fogger quickly fills with bugs. Brian Farrell took this video when he and a group of undergraduates came here for spring break in 2002. Not to party, but to BioBlitz, a frenetic week of insect collecting. We collected about 500 species uh, in that one week, and probably about half of them are belong to known species. Which means the other half await scientific description. That's not surprising, considering the insect fauna of the Dominican Republic is not well known. But what is surprising is what else Farrell and his tireless team of undergraduates did. We barcoded everything, uh, entered it into the database, took high-resolution digital images, and put everything on the web before the course was over. And the bugs that were collected? You won't find them in that Fort Knox vault down the hall. That's because Farrell did something pretty radical for a field biologist. While he took home the photos, he left the actual specimens in the Dominican Republic at the Natural History Museum in Santo Domingo. And the auto-montage system he took down there, he also left that with the Dominican scientists. Each month by Federal Express, they send up a CD full of, uh, with the updates of images and and information from the natural history collections there, and we mount them on the Internet. Eventually, they'll have their own servers and be able to uh, mount everything there. So this searchable, growing database is accessible to all for free. As Farrell clicks through it on his office computer, I spot an unusual message. Could you read that? Help. Help us with identifications. Yes, uh, we've uh, invited our taxonomist colleagues uh, 
um, around the world to log on and uh, look at the specimens um, because in many cases they're of undescribed species. And so this is a way to, uh, to basically jumpstart the uh, description and knowledge of the biota. Piotr Nazgrecki has already seen the effect of an online collection. Since he and colleagues put up a Katie Dids of the World database, he's seen a dramatic increase in the number of scientists from developing countries who've described new species of Katie Dids. So we have students in Central America and South America and Southeast Asia working on candidates only because for the very first time they are able to access information about the fauna of their own countries with absolutely no problem and for free. Brian Farrell hopes his Dominican Republic expedition will serve as a model. He's already making plans for a similar bio and digital blitz in Cuba. Such piecemeal but important efforts will help to chip away, species by species, at the daunting task of completing a global taxonomic survey in a generation. Already a number of similar efforts are underway. Researchers are carrying out surveys in Sweden, New Zealand, and Italy. In the U.S., national park officials are talking about more inventories similar to the one in the Smokies. The National Science Foundation has responded to intense lobbying by the taxonomic community and increased its budget for species identification and inventory efforts. And the NSF has just awarded a dozen more grants to fund taxonomy students. In the meantime, E.O. Wilson continues to use his bully pulpit to encourage, cajole, and implore the scientific community, indeed the global community, to discover what remains unknown. Back in his Harvard office, Professor Wilson is hardly resting on the laurels of his 800-page tome to the Fidoliant. That bio-blitz Brian Farrell is organizing to Cuba, Professor Wilson intends to go along. Have you worked in Cuba? Uh, a long time ago, 1953. I spent part of a, uh, a year down there, and I can't wait to get back. <laughs> E.O. Wilson is the living bridge between the old taxonomy and the new, one who for most of his career patiently sketched the intricate drawings that served as the basis of species identification for centuries. Yet he embraced the cutting-edge technology that took away the need for that skill. A scientist who remains enraptured by his chosen creature, yet one who sees the urgency of describing the full web of life. You know, one of the reasons to take real pleasure from this future is that it does return us to the 19th century, in a sense. The world has to be explored uh, by people who go out in the wild to uh, in some of the most interesting places in the wild and engage in physical adventure, like the athletic young men and women who are now working their way up into the canopies of the uh, tropical rainforest. Uh, so it has that appeal uh, that we can resume an exploration of a little-known planet, and that we can combine literal physical adventure uh, with uh, fundamental science. Put in that way, who could resist such a call to action? For Living on Earth, I'm Diane Toomey in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Planet was produced and reported by Diane Toomey and edited by Chris Ballman. Andy Farnsworth mixed the program. Living on Earth is produced for the World Media Foundation. 
If you have any comments, you can share them with us at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Or write to us at 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. Our email address is comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. And you can hear our program anytime on our webpage at livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. Allison Dean composed our themes. I'm Steve Kerwood, executive producer. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm. Organic yogurt, cultured soy, and smoothies. 10% of their profits are donated to support environmental causes and family farms. Learn more at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Annenberg Foundation. This is NPR, National Public Radio.